Section 1 of Sasha. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sasha by Alexander Kuprin. Translated by Douglas Ashby. Section 1. Cambrinus is the name of a popular beer shop in the vast pools of South Russia. Although rather well situated in one of the most crowded streets, it was hard to find, owing to the fact that it was underground. Often, old customers who knew it well would miss this remarkable establishment and would retrace their steps after passing two or three neighbouring shops. There was no signboard of any kind. One entered a narrow door, always open, straight from the pavement. Then came a narrow staircase with twenty stone steps that were bent and crooked from the tramp of millions of heavy boots. At the end of the staircase, on a petition, there was displayed in auto-relief the painted figure, double life-size, of the grandiose beer patron, King Gambrinos himself. This attempt in sculpture was probably the first work of an amateur and seems to be clumsily hacked out of an enormous petrified sponge. But the red jacket, the ermine mantle, the gold crown, and the mug raised on high with its trickling white froth left no doubt in the visitor's mind that he stood in the very presence of the great beer king. The place consisted of two long but extremely low vaulted rooms, from whose stone walls damp streams were always pouring, lit up by gas jets that burned day and night, for the beer shop was not provided with a single window. On the vaults, however, traces of amusing paintings were still more or less distinguishable. In one of these, a band of German lands, in green hunting jackets, with woodcock feathers in their hats and rifles on their shoulders were feasting. One and all, as they faced the beer hall, greeted the customers with outstretched mugs, while two of them continued to embrace the waist of a pair of plump girls, servants of the village inn, or perhaps daughter of some worthy farmer. On the other wall was displayed a fashionable picnic, early 18th century, with countesses and viscounts frolicking in powdered wigs on the green lawn with lambs. Next to this was a picture of drooping willows, a pond with swans which ladies and gentlemen, reclining on a kind of gilt shell, were gracefully feeding. Then came a picture of the interior of a Ukrainian hut, with a family of happy Ukrainians dancing the gopak with large bottles in their hands. Still further down the room, a large barrel sported itself, upon which two grotesquely fat cupids, wreathed with hop leaves and grapes, with red faces, fat lips, and shamelessly oily eyes, clicked glasses. In the second hall, separated from the other by a small archway, were illustrations from frog life. Frogs were drinking beer in a green marsh, hunting grasshoppers among the thick reeds, playing upon stringed instruments fighting with swords, and so on. Apparently the walls had been painted by some foreign master. Instead of tables, heavy oak barrels were arranged on the sawdust-strewn floor, and small barrels took the place of chairs. To the right of the entrance was a small platform with a piano on it. Here, night after night, through a long stretch of years, Sasha, a Jew, a gentle merry fellow, drunk and bald, who had the appearance of a peeled monkey, and who might be any age, 
used to play the violin for the pleasure and distraction of the guests. As the years passed, the waiters with their leather-topped sleeves changed. The bartenders also changed. Even the proprietors of the beer shop changed. But Sasha invariably, every night at six o'clock, sat on his platform with his fiddle in his hands and a little white dog on his knee. And by one o'clock in the morning, always with the same little dog, Bielochka, he would leave Gambrinus, scarcely able to stand after his beer. There was, too, at Gambrinus, another unchanging face, that of the president of the buffet, a fat, bloodless old woman who, from being always in that damp beer basement, resembled one of those pale, lazy fish which swarm in the depths of sea caverns. Like the captain of a ship from his bridge, she, from the height of her bar, would give curt orders to the waiters, smoking all the time, and holding her cigarette in the right corner of her mouth, while her right eye constantly blinked from the smoke. Her voice was rarely audible, and she responded to the bows of her guests with always with the same colourless smile. The enormous port, one of the largest commercial ports in the world, was always crowded with ships. In it appeared the dark, rusty, gigantic, armour-clad vessels. In it were loaded, on their way to the Far East, the yellow, thick-funnelled steamers of the volunteer fleet that absorbed every day-long trains of goods or thousands of prisoners. In spring and autumn, hundreds of flags from all points of the globe waved, and from morning until night, orders and insults, in every conceivable language, rang out lustily. From the ships to the docks and warehouses, and back along the quivering gangways, the loaders ran to and fro. Russian tramps in rags, almost naked, with drunken, swollen faces, swarthy Turks in dirty turbans with large trousers, loose to the knees but tightened from there to the ankles, squat, muscular Persians, their hair and nails painted a red carrot colour with chinchuna. After graceful Italian schooners, with two or three masts, their regular layers of sail clean, white and elastic as young women's breasts, would put it to this port at respectable distance from each other. Just showing over the lighthouse, these stately ships seemed, particularly on a clear spring morning, like wonderful white phantoms, swimming not in the water, but on the air above the horizon. Here, too, for months, in the dirty green port water, among the rubbish of eggshells and watermelon peels, among the flight of white seagulls, the high boats from Anatolia, the Feligi from Trebizond, with their strange painted carvings and fantastic ornaments swayed at anchor. Here, extraordinary narrow ships, with black tarred sails, with dirty rag in place of a flag, swam in from time to time doubling the mole, almost rattling against it with its side. One of these ships, lying close to the water, and without moderating its speed, would dash into any harbour, and there, amid the international insults, curses and threats, would put in at the first dock, to hand where its sailors, quite naked, bronze little people, with guttural gurgling voices, would furl the torn sails with amazing rapidity, and the dirty, mysterious ships, would immediately become lifeless. And just as enigmatically some dark night, without lighting its fires, 
it would soundly disappear from the port. At night, indeed, the whole bay swarmed with light, little smuggling craft. The fishermen from the outskirts and from the further off used to cart their fish into town. In the spring, small camsas filling their long boats by the million. In the summer, the monstrous dab. In the autumn, mackerel, fat, kettles and oysters. In the winter, white sturgeon from ten to twenty pools in weight, often caught at considerable risk miles out to sea. All these people, sailors of varied nationalities, fishermen, stokers, merry cabin boys, port thieves, mechanics, workmen, boatmen, loaders, divers, smugglers, all young, healthy and impregnated with the strong smell of the sea and fish, knew well what it was to endure, enjoyed the delight and the terror of everyday danger, valued above anything else, courage, daring, the ring of strong flashing words and, when on shore, would give themselves up with the savage delight to debauchery, drunkenness and fighting. At night, the lights of the large town, towering above the port, lured them like magical shining, eyes that always promised something fresh, glad and not yet experienced, but always with the same deceit. The town was linked to the ports by steep, narrow, crooked streets, which decent folk avoided at night. At every step, one encountered night shelters with dirty windows, protected by railings and lit up by the gloomy light of the solitary lamp inside. Still, oftener, one passed little shops in which one could sell anything one happened to have, from the sailor's kit down to his net, and rig himself out again in whatever sailor's kit one chose. Here, too, were many beer shops, taverns, eating houses and inns, with flamboyant signboards in every known language, and not a few disorderly houses, at once obvious and secret, from the steps of which hideously painted women would call to the sailors in hoarse voices. There were Greek coffee shops, where one used to play dominoes and cars, and Turkish coffee shops where one could smoke nargars and get a night shelter for five kopecks. There were small oriental inns in which they sold snails, petalidus, shrimps, mussels, large inky scuttlefishes, and all sorts of sea monstrosities. Somewhere in the attics and basements, behind heavy shutters, were hidden gambling dens, where Faro and Baccarat often ended in one's stomach being slit or one's skull broken. And right to the next corner, sometimes in the next house, there was sure to be someone with whom one could dispose of anything stolen, from a diamond bracelet to a silver cross, and from a bale of leons velvet to a sailor's government green coat. These steep, narrow streets, blackened with coal dust towards night, became greasy and reeked as though they were sweating in a nightmare. They resembled drains or dirty pipes, through which the cosmopolitan town vomited into the sea all its rubbish, all its rottenness, all its abomination and its vice, infecting with these things the strong, muscular bodies and simple souls of the men of the sea. The rowdy inhabitants of these streets rarely visited the dressed-up, always holiday-like town, with its plate glass windows, its imposing monuments, its gleam of electric light, its asphalt pavements, its avenues of white acacias, its imposing policemen, and all its surface of cleanliness and order. 
but every one of them, before he had flung to the winds, those torn, greasy, swollen, paper roubles of his toil, would invariably visit Gambrinus. This was sanctified by ancient tradition, even if it were necessary to steal under cover of darkness into this very centre of the town. Many of them, truly enough, did not know the complicated name of the famous beer king. Someone would simply say, let's go to Sasha's, and the others would answer, right eh, that's agreed, and they would shout in a chorus together, hurrah. It is not in the least surprising that among the dock and sea folk, Sasha enjoyed more respect and popularity than, for example, the local archbishop or governor, and without doubt, if it were not his name, then it was his vivid monkey face and his fiddle that were remembered in Sydney or Plymouth, as well as in New York, Vladivostok, Constantinople and Ceylon, to say nothing of the gulfs and bays of the Black Sea, where there were many admirers of his talents among the daring fishermen. Sasha would usually arrive at Gambrinus at a time when there was nobody there except perhaps a chance visitor or two. At this time, a thick, sour smell of yesterday's beer hung over the rooms, and it was rather dark, as they were economical in those days with gas. In hot July days, when the stone town languished from the heat and was deafened by the crackling din of the streets, one found the quiet and coolness of the place quite agreeable. Sasha would approach the buffet, greet Madame Ivanova, and drink his first mug of beer. Sometimes she would say, won't you play something, Sasha? What do you want me to play, Madame Ivanova? Sasha, who was one of the most polite terms with her, used to ask, amiably, something of your own. Then he would sit down in his usual place to the left of the piano and play long, strange, melancholy pieces. Somehow it became sleepy and quiet in the basement, with only a hint of the muffled roar of the town. From time to time the waiters would jingle carefully the crockery on the other side of the kitchen wall. Then, from the chords of Sasha's fiddle, came interwoven and blended with the sad flowers of national melodies, Jewish sorrow as ancient as the earth. Sasha's face, his chin strained, his forehead bent low, his eyes looking gravely up from under the heavy brows, had no resemblance in this twilight hour to the grinning, twinkling, dancing face of Sasha that was so familiar to all Grambrenner's guests. The little dog, the Elochka, was sitting on his knees. She had been taught long ago not to howl to the music, but the passionately sad, sobbing and cursing sounds got on her nerves in spite of herself, and in compulsive little yawns she opened her mouth, curling up her fine pink tongue, and with all her fragile body and pretty small muzzle, so very vibrated to her master's music. But little by little the public began to appear, and with it, the accompanist, who had left his daily occupation at some tailor's or watchmaker's shop. On the buffet there were sausages and hot water and cheese sandwiches, and at last the other gas jets were lit up. Sasha drank his second mug of beer, gave his order to the accompanist, the May parade, Ains Dwe Dre, and a stormy march began. From this moment he had scarcely time to exchange greetings with the newcomers. Each of them considers himself Sasha's particularly intimate friend, and looked round proudly at the other guest after receiving his bow, winkling first with one eye and then with the other, gathering all his wrinkles into his bald receding skull, 
Sasha moved his lips grotesquely and smiled in all directions. At about 10 or 11, Gambrinus, which could accommodate 200 or more people, was absolutely choked. Many, almost half, came in accompanied by women with fitches in their head. No one took offence at the lack of room, at a trampled toe, a crumpled hat, or someone else's beer being poured over one's trousers. And if they did take offence, it was merely a case of a drunken row. The dampness of the dimly lit cellar showed itself on the walls, smeared with oil paint, and from the ceiling the vapour from the crowd steamed like a warm, heavy rain. At Gambrinus they drank seriously. It was considered the right thing in the establishment to sit together in groups of two or three, covering so much of the improvised table with empty bottles that one saw one's vis-a-vis as though a glass-green forest. In the turmoil of the evening, the guests became hoarse and overheated. Your eyes smarted from tobacco smoke. You had to shout and lean over the table in order to hear and be heard in the general din. And only the indefatigable fiddle of Sasha, sitting on his platform, triumphed over the stuffiness, the beat and the reek of tobacco, the gas jets, the beer and the shouting of the unceremonious public. But the guests rapidly became drunk from beer, proximity of women and the stifling air. Everyone wanted his own favourite songs. Close to Sasha, two or three people with dull eyes and uncertain movements were constantly bobbing up to pull him up by the sleeve and interfere with his playing. Sash, the sad one, the speaker stammered on. Do please. At once, at once, Sasha would repeat with a quick nod as with the adroitness of a doctor. He slipped the piece of silver noiselessly into his pocket. At once, at once. Sasha, that's a swindle. I've given the money and this is the twentieth time that I'm asking for. I was swimming down the sea to Odessa. At once, at once. Sasha, the nightingale. Sasha, Marilisa. Zet, zet, Sasha, zet, zet. At once, at once. The church band howled from the other end of the room, a scarcely human but rather a kind of colt's voice. And Sasha, to the general amusement, shouted back to him like a cock. At once and then, without stopping, he would play all the songs they had called for. Apparently, he knew every single one of them by heart. Silver coins fell into his pockets from all sides, and mugs of beer came to him from every table. When he descended from his platform to get to the bar, he would be nearly pulled into pieces. Sashenka won little mug, like a good chap. Here's to your health, Sasha, you devil. Come along when you're asked. Sasha, come drink some beer, bellowed the cold voice. The women, inclined like all women to admire professionals, would begin to make themselves conspicuous and show off their adoration, calling to him in cooing voices and capricious little, playful little laughs. Sashtetchka, you simply must have a drink with me. No, 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 I'm asking you, and then play the cakewalk. Sasha smiled, grimaced, bowed, left, right and left, pressed his hand to his heart, blew airy kisses, drank beer at all the tables and on returning to piano, where a fresh mug was waiting for him, would begin something like separation. Sometimes, to amuse his audience, he would make his fiddle whine like a puppy, grunt like a pig, or rattle in heart-rendering bass sounds, all in perfect time. The audience greeted these antics with benevolent approval. Ho, 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 ho. It was becoming still hotter. Heat steamed from the ceiling. Some of the guests were already in tears, beating their breasts. Others, with bloodshot eyes, were quarrelling over women and were clambering towards each other to pay off old scores, only to be held back by their more sober neighbours, 
generally parasites. The waiters miraculously found room for their legs and bodies to slide between the barrels, large and small, their hands strung with beer mugs raised high and above the heads of the carousers. Madame Ivanova, more bloodless, imperturbable, and silent than ever, directed from her counter the performances of the waiters, like a ship captain in a storm. Everyone was overpowered by the desire to sing, softened by beer and by his own kindness, and given by the coarse delight that his music was given to others. Sasha was ready to play anything, and at the sounds of his fiddle, hoarse people with awkward wooden voices all bawled out the same tuning, looking into one another's eyes with a senseless seriousness. Why should we separate? Why should we live in separation? Isn't it better to marry and cherish love? Then another gang, apparently hostile, tried and howled down its rival by starting another tune. Gambrinus was often visited by Greeks from Asia, minor Dongoloki, who put into the Russian ports with fish. They too gave orders to Sasha for their oriental songs, consisting of dismal, monotonous howling on two or three notes, and they were ready to sing them for hours with gloomy faces and burning eyes. Sasha also played popular Italian couplets, Ukrainian popular songs, Jewish wedding marches, and many others. Once a little party of Negro sailors found their way into Gambrinus, and they also, in imitation of the others, wanted very much to sing a bit. Sasha quickly picked up a galloping Negro melody, chose the accompaniment on the piano, and then, and there, to the great delight and amusement of the habitues, the beer shop rang with the strange, capricious, guttural sound of an African song. An acquaintance of Sasha's, a reporter on a local paper, once persuaded a professor of a musical school to pay a visit to Gambrinus and listen to the famous violinist. But Sasha got wind of it and purposely made his fiddle new, lute and bellow more than usual that evening. The guests of Gambrinus were simply splitting their sides and their professors observed with profound contempt clownery, and out he went without even finishing his mug of beer. Every now and then, the exquisite marquises, the festive German sportsmen, the plump cupids and the frogs looked down their walls and the kind of debauch that one could seldom see anywhere except at Gambrinus. For example, a gang of thieves on a spree after a good haul would come in, each with his sweetheart, each with his cap on one side and a defiant, insolent expression, displaying his patent leather boots negligently with all the distinction of the cabaret at its best. To them, Sasha would play special thieves, songs such as I'm done for, poor little boy, Don't cry, Mauricio, The spring has passed, and others. It was beneath their dignity to dance, but their sweethearts, for the most part not bad-looking, and usually young, some little girls would dance the hitaban, squealing and clicking their heels. Both men and women drank heavily. One thing only was wrong with them. They always finished off their sprees with old disputes about money and went off when they could, without paying. Fishermen, after a good catch, would come in a large party of about thirty. Late in the autumn, there were such lucky weeks that each net would bring in every day up to forty thousand mackerel or kefal. At a time like this, the smallest shareholder would make over two hundred rubles. But what was still better for the fishermen was a lucky haul of sturgeon in the water. This was a matter of great difficulty. One had to work hard some thirty verse from shore. In the still 
of the night, sometimes in stormy weather, when the boats leaked the water froze on one's clothes and on the oars, the weather would keep like this for two or three days. If the wind did not throw you two hundred verse away at Anap or Trebizond, every winter a dozen or so of skiffs would simply disappear, and only in the summer did the waves bring back to this or, to, or that point of the coast the corpse of the gallant fishermen. But when they came back from the sea safe, after a good catch, they came on shore with a frenzied thirst for life. Thousands of roubles went in two or three days in the coarsest, most deafening drunken orgies. The fishermen used to get into some cabaret or other throw, all the other guests out, lock the doors, close the shutters, and for days at a stretch without stopping, would devote themselves to women and drink, house songs, smash the glasses and crockery, beat the women and fruitfully one another, until sleep came over them anywhere, on the tables, on the floor, across the beds, among spittens, cigar ends, broken glasses, the splash of wine and even the splash of blood. That is how the fishermen went on the spree for several consecutive days, sometimes changing the place, sometimes remaining in the same den. Having gone through everything to the last farthing, they would return to the docks, their heads bursting, their faces marked by brawls, their limbs shaking from drink, and silent, cowed and repentant, would enter the boats to resume that hard and captivating trade which they loved and cursed in the same breath. Never did they forget to visit Gambrinus, and they would throng with their hoarse voices and their faces burnt by the ferocious northwest winter, with their waterproof jackets, their leather trousers and their top boots up to the thighs, those self-same boots in which their comrades, in the middle of some stormy night, had gone to the bottom like stones. Out of respect for Sasha, they did not kick strangers out, though they felt themselves master of the beer shop and would break the heavy mugs on the floor. Sasha played for them their own fisherman songs, drawling simple and terrible as the beat of the sea, and they sang together, straining on the uttermost their powerful chests and hardened throats. Sasha acted upon them like Orpheus on the waves and sometimes an old hetman of a boat, forty years old, bearded, weather-beaten, an enormous wild animal-like fellow, would melt into tears as he gave out in a small voice the sorrowful words of Ah, poor me, little lad, that I was born a fisherman. And sometimes they danced, trampling away on the same spot, with set stone-like faces, rattling with their heavy boots, and impregnating the whole cabaret with the sharp, salt smell of the fish, with which their clothes and bodies had been soaked through and through. To Sasha they were very generous, and never left him long away from their tables. He knew well the outline of their desperate, reckless lives, and often when playing for them, he felt in his soul a kind of respectful grief. But he was particularly fond of playing for the English sailors from the merchant ships. They would come in a herd, hand in hand, looking like picked men, big-chested, large-shouldered with white teeth, healthy colours and merry, bold blue eyes. Their strong muscles stood out under their jackets, and from their deep-cut, Collars rose straight and strong at their stately necks. Some of them knew Sasha from former visits to this port. They recognised him, grinning with their white teeth, and greeted him in Russian, Strace, Strace. Sasha, of his own accord, without invitation, used to play for them Royal Britannia. Probably the consciousness that they were now in a country bowed down by centuries of slavery gave a certain proud solemnity to this hymn of English liberty. And when they sang, standing with other covered heads, the last magnificent words, Britons never, never, never shall be slaves, then involuntarily 
the most boisterous visitor to Gambrinus took off his hat. The square-built boatswain, with one earring and a beard that fringed his neck, came up to Sasha with two mugs of beer and broad smile, clapped him on the back in a friendly way and asked him to play a jig. At the very first sound of this bold and daring dance of the sea, the English jumped up and cleared out the place, pushing the little barrels to the walks. The stranger's permission was asked by gestures, with merry smiles, but if someone was in no hurry, there was no ceremony with him, and his seat was simply knocked from under him with a good kick. This was seldom necessary, however, because at Gambrinus everybody appreciated dances, and was pretty particularly fond of the English gig. Even Sasha, himself, playing all the time, would mount on a chair so as to see better. The sailors formed a circle, clapping their hands in time with the quick dance music, and then two of them came into the middle. The dance figured the life of, of a sailor on a sea. The ship is ready to start. The weather is superb. Everything is in order. The dancers have their hands crossed on their chests, their heads thrown back, their bodies quiet, though the feet marked a frenzied beat. Then a slight wind arises, and with it a faint rocking. For a sailor that is only pleasant, but the steps of the dance became more and more complicated and varied. A fresh wind starts. It is already not so easy to walk on deck, and the dancers are slightly rocked from side to side. At last there comes a real storm, and the sailor is burled from tough rail to tough rail. The business is getting serious. All hands on deck, roof the sails. By the dancers' movement, one detects with amusement how they scramble up the shrewds with hands and feet, hold the sails and strengthen the topsail while the storm tosses the ship and more fiercely. Man, overboard, stop. A boat is lowered, the dancers bending their heads low and straining their powerful naked throats, row with quick strokes as they bend and straighten their backs. But the storm passes, the rocking settles down, the ship runs slightly with a following wind, while the dancers become motionless again, with crossed hands as they beat with their feet, a swift merry jig. Sometimes Sasha had to play a Les Grinka for the Georgians, who were employed at winemaking in the neighbourhood. No dance was unknown to him. When a dancer in a fur cap and a cherskeska fluttered airily between the barrels, throwing first one hand and then the other behind his head, while his friends clapped in time and shrieked, Sasha too could not refrain and shouted joyously in time with them. Has, has, has. Sometimes too he would play Moldovian dancers and the Italian tarantella and waltzes for German sailors. Occasionally they fought, and sometimes rather brutally at Gambrinus, Old visitors like to yarn about the legendary slaughter between Russian sailors on active service. De Star charged from some cruiser to the reserve and a party of English sailors. They fought with fists, cassettes, nearbugs, and even hurled at each other the little barrels that were used for seats. It must be admitted, and not to the honour of the Russian warriors, that it was they who first started the row and first took to the knife. And though they were three to one in numbers, they only squeezed the English out of the beer shop after a fight of half an hour. Quite often, Sasha's interference stopped a quarrel that was within a hair's breadth of bloodshed. He would come up to the disputants, joke, smile, grimace, and at once from all sides, mugs would be stretched out to him. Sasha, a little mug, Sasha have one with me. Perhaps the kind and comic goodness, merrily beaming from his eyes, that were almost hidden under the sloping skull acted like a charm on these simple savages. 
Perhaps it was an intimate respect for talent, something almost like gratitude. Perhaps it was due to the fact that most of the habitudes of Gambinus were never out of Sasha's debt. In the tenderness interludes of Decocht, which, in seaport jargon and stony broke, one could approach Sasha for small sums and for small credit at the buffet without fear of refusal. Of course, the debts were never repaid, not from evil attention, but merely from forgetfulness. All the same, these debtors, during their orgies, returned tenfold their debts and their tips to Sasha for his songs. The woman at the buffet sometimes reproached him. I am surprised, Sasha, that you are not more careful with your money. He would answer with conviction, But, Madam Ivanova, I can't take it with me to my grave. There will be enough for us both. That is for me and Bialochka. Come here, Bialochka, good doggy. The songs of the day could also be heard at Gambrinus. At the time of the Boer War, the Boer March was a great favourite. It seems that the famous fight between the Russian and English sailors took place at this very time. Twenty times an evening, at last, they forced Sasha to play this heroic march and invariably waved their caps and shouted hurrah. They would look askance to and different onlookers, which was not always a good omen at Gambrinus. Then came the Franco-Russian celebrations. The mayor gave a grudged permission for the Marseille to be played. It was called for every day, but not so often as the Boer March, and they shouted hurrah in a small chorus, and did not wave their caps at all. This state of things arose from the fact that no deep sentiment underlay their call for the Marseille. Again, the audience at Gambrinus did not grasp sufficiently the political importance of the alliance. Finally, one noticed that it was always the same people every evening who asked for the Marseille and shouted hurrah. For a same short time, the cakewalk was popular, and once an excited little merchant danced it in and out between the barrels without removing his raccoon coat, his high galoshes and his fox fur hat. However, the negro dance was soon forgotten. Then came the Great Japanese War. The visitors to Gambrinus began to live at high pressure. Newspapers appeared on the barrels. War was discussed every evening. The most peaceful, simple people were transformed into politicians and strategists. But at the bottom of his heart, each one of them was anxious, if not for himself, then for a brother or, still more often, for a close comrade. In those days, the conspicuously strong tie which wields together those who have shared long toil, danger and the near presence of death showed itself clearly. At the beginning, no one doubted our victory. Sasha had procured from somewhere the Kuroptine march, and for about twenty-nine evenings, one after the other, he played it with a certain success. But somehow or other, one evening, the Kuroptine march was squeezed out for good by a song brought by the Balakalava fishermen, the salt Greeks, or the Pindos, as they were called, and that why we were we turned into soldiers and sent to the Far East, and we really at fault because our height is an extra inch? From that moment they would listen to no other song at Gambrinus. For whole evenings one could hear nothing but people clamouring. Sasha, the sorrowful one, the balaclava one, they sang, cried and drank twice as much as before, but so far as drinking went, all Russia was doing much the same. Every evening someone would come to say goodbye, would brag for a bit, puff himself out like a cock throw his hat on the floor, threaten to smash all the little Japs by himself, and end up with a sorrowful song and tears. Once Sasha came earlier than useful to the beer shop. 
The women at the buffet said from habit as she poured out his first mug, Sasha, play something of your own. All of a sudden, his lips became comforted and his mug shook in his hand. Do you know, Madam Ivanova, he said in a bewildered way, they're taking me as a soldier to the war. Madam Ivanova threw her hands up in astonishment. But it's impossible, Sasha, you're joking. Sasha shook his head dejectedly and submissively. I'm not joking. But you're over age, Sasha. How old are you? No one had ever been interested in that question. Everyone considered that Sasha as old as the walls of the beer shop, the Marcuses, the Ukrainians, the frogs, and even the painted king who guarded the entrance, Gambrinus himself. 46. Sasha thought for a second or two. Perhaps 49. I'm an orphan, he added sadly. But you must go and explain to the authorities. I've been to them already, Madame Ivanova. I've explained. Well? Well, they answered. Scabby Jew, sheeny snout. Just you say a little more and you'll be jugged. There. And then they struck me. Everyone heard the news that evening at Gabrinus, and they got Sasha dead drunk with their sympathy. He tried to play the buffoon, grimaced, winked, but from his kind, funny eyes there peeped out grief and awe. A strongish workman, a tinker by trade, suddenly offered to go to the war, in Sasha's place. The stupidity of the suggestion was quite clear to all, but Sasha was touched, shed a few tears, embraced the tinker, and then and there gave him his fiddle. He left Bielochka with the woman at the buffet. Madame Ivanova, take care of the little dog. Perhaps I won't come back, so you will have a souvenir of Sasha. Bielenka, good doggy. Look, it's licking itself. Ah, you, my li- poor little one. And I want to ask you something else, Madame Ivanova. The boss owes me some money, so please get it and send it on. I'll write the address. In Gomola, I have a first cousin who has a family. And in Jamaica, that's my nephew's widow. I send it at them every month. Well, we Jews are people like that. We are fond of our relations, and I'm an orphan. I'm alone. Goodbye, then, Madame Ivanova. Goodbye, Sasha. We must at least have a goodbye kiss. It's been so many years, and don't be angry. I'm going to cross you for the journey. Sasha's eyes were profoundly sad, but he couldn't help clowning to the end. But, Madame Ivanova, what if I die from the Russian cross? Gambrinus became empty as though orphaned without Sasha and his fiddle. The manager invited as a substitute a quartet of strolling madolinists, one of whom dressed like a comic opera Englishman, with red whiskers and a false nose, checked trousers and a stiff collar higher than his ears, sang comic couplets and danced shamelessly on the platform. But the quartet was an utter failure. It was hissed and pelted with bits of sausage, and the leading comic was once beaten by the tendro fisherman for a respectful allusion to Sasha. All the same, Gabrinos, from old memory, was visited by the lads of sea and port, whom the war had not drawn to the death and suffering. Every evening, the first subject of conversation would be Sasha. Eh, it would be fine to have Sasha back now. One's soul feels heavy without him. Yes, where are you hovering, Sashenka, dear kind friend? In the fields of Manchuria, far away, someone would pipe up in the words of the latest song. Then he would break off in confusion and another would put in unexpectedly. Wounds may be split open and hacked, and there are also torn ones. 
I congratulate you on victory. You with the torn-out arm. Stop. Don't wire, Madame Ivanova. Isn't there any news from Sasha? A letter or a little postcard? Madame Ivanova used to read the paper now the whole evening, holding it at arm's length, her head thrown back, her lips constantly moving. Bielotchka lay on her knees, giving from time to time little peaceful snores. The presider at the buffet was already far from being like a vigilant captain on his bridge, and their crew wandered about the shop half asleep. At questions about Sasha's fate, she would shake her head slowly. I know nothing. There are no letters, and no one gets nothing from the newspapers. Then she would take off her spectacles slowly, place them with the newspaper close to the warm body of Bilochka, and turn around to have a quiet cry to herself. Sometimes she would bend over the dog and ask in a plaintive, touching little voice, Bielenka, doggy, where is our Sasha, where is our master? Bielotchka raised her delicate little muscle, blinked with her moist black eyes, and in the tone of the buffet woman, began quietly to whine out, But time smooths and washes up everything. The mandalists were replaced by Balaika players, and they in turn by a choir of Ukrainians with girls. Then the well-known Leshka, the harmonist, a professional thief who had decided in view of his marriage to seek regular employment, established himself at Gambrinus more solidly than the others. He was a familiar figure in different cabarets, which explains why he was tolerated here, or rather had to be tolerated, for things were going badly at the beer shop. Months passed, a year passed, no one remembered anything more about Sasha, except Madame Ivanova, who no longer cried when she mentioned his name. Another year went by, probably even the little white dog had forgotten Sasha. But in spite of Sasha's misgivings, he had not died from the Russian cross. He had not even been once wounded, though he had taken part in three great battles, and on one occasion went to the attack in front of his battalion as a member of the band, in which he played the fife. At Van Goa he was taken prisoner, and at the end of the war he was brought back on board a German ship to the very port where his friends continued to work and create uproars. The news of his arrival ran like an electric current round the bays, moles, wharves and workshops. In the evening there was scarcely standing room at Gabrinus. Mugs of beer were passed from hand to hand, over people's heads, and although many escaped without paying on that day, Gambrinus never did such business before. The tinker brought Sasha's fiddle, carefully wrapped up in his wife's fidgy, which he then and there sold for drink. Sasha's old accompanist was fished out from somewhere or other. Leshka, the harmonist, a jealous, conceited fellow, tried to compete with Sasha, repeating obstinately, I am paid by the day and I have a contract, but he was merely thrown out and would certainly have been thrashed up but for Sasha's intercession. Probably not one of the hero patriots of the Japanese war had ever seen such a hearty and stormy welcome as was given to Sasha. Strong, rough hands seized him, lifted him into the air, and threw him with such force that he was almost broken to bits against the ceiling. And they shouted so deafeningly that the gas jets went out, and several times a policeman came down into the beer shop imploring, a little lower, it really sounds very loud in the street. That evening, Sasha played all the favourite songs and dances of the place. He also played some little Japanese songs that he had learned as a prisoner, but his audience did not take to them. Madame Ivanova, like one revived, was once more courageously on her bridge, 
while Bielinka, sitting on Sasha's knees, yelped with joy. When he stopped playing, simple-minded fishermen, realising for the first time the miracle of Sasha's return, would suddenly exclaim in naive and delighted stupefaction, Brothers, but this is Sasha. The rooms of Gambrinus then resounded once more with joyous bad words, and Sasha would again seize and thrown up to the ceiling while they shouted, drank healths and split beer over one another. Sasha, it seemed, had scarcely altered and had not grown older during his absence. His sufferings had produced no more external change on him than on the modelled Gambrinus, the guardian and protector of the beer shop. Only Madame Ivanova, with the sensitiveness of a kind-hearted woman, noticed that the expression of awe and distress which she had seen in Sasha's eyes when he said goodbye had not disappeared, but had become yet deeper and more significant. As in old days, he played the buffoon, winked and puckered up his forehead, but Madame Ivanova felt that he was pretending all the time. Nothing was as usual, just as if there had been no war at all, and Sasha had never been imprisoned in Nagasaki. Just as usual, the fishermen with their giant boots were celebrating a lucky catch of sturgeon, while bands of thieves danced in the old way. Sasha playing, as just as he used to do, sailor songs brought to him from every inlet of the globe. But already dangerous stormy times were at hand. One evening the whole town became stirred and agitated, as though roused by a toxin. In an, at an unusual hour the streets grew black with people. Small white sheets were going from hand to hand, bearing the miraculous word liberty, which the whole immeasurable country repeated to itself that evening. There followed clear, holiday-like, exulting days, and their radiance lit up even the vaults of Cambrinus. Students and workmen came in, and beautiful young girls came too. People with glazing eyes mounted on those barrels, which had seen so much in their time, and spoke. Everything was not comprehensible in the words they uttered, but the hearts of all throbbed and expanded to meet the flaming hope and the great love that vibrated through them. Sasha, the Marseille, go ahead with the Marseille. No, this was not at all like that other Marseille that the mayor had grudgingly allowed to be played during the week of the Franco-Russian celebrations. Endless processions with songs and red flags were going along the street. The women wore red ribbons and red flowers. People who were utter strangers met and shook hands with each other with happy smiles. But suddenly all this jubilation disappeared as washed out like children's footsteps on the sands. The sub-inspector of police, fat, small, choking with bloodshed, protruding his eyes. His face red as an overripe tomato stormed into Gambrinus. What? Who's the proprietor of this place? He rattled out. Bring him to me. Suddenly his eyes fell on Sasha, who was standing, fiddle in hand. So you're the proprietor, are ye? Shut up. What? Playing anthems? No anthems permitted. There will be no more anthems at all, your highness. Sasha replied calmly. The police dog turned purple, brought his raised index finger to Sasha's very nose and shook it menacingly from left to right. None, whatever. I understand, Your Highness, none, whatever. I'll teach you, revolutions, I'll teach you. The sub-inspector bounded out of the beer shop like a bomb, and with his departure everyone became flattened and dejected, and gloom descended on the whole town. For dark, anxious, repugnant rumours were floating about, one talked cautiously. People feared to betray themselves by a glance, were afraid of their own shadows, afraid of their own thoughts. The town thought for the first time with dread of the sewer that was rumbling under its feet. 
down there by the sea into which it had been throwing out for so many years, its poison refuse. The town shielded the plate glass windows of its magnificent shops, protected with patrols its proud monuments, and posted artillery in the yards of its fine houses in case of emergency. But in the outskirts, in the fettered dens, in the rotting garrets, throbbed, prayed, and cried with awe the people chosen by God, abandoned long ago by the wrathful Bible God, but still believing that the measure of its heavy trials was not yet spent. There down by the sea, in those streets that resembled black, sticky drainpipes, a mysterious work was progressing. The doors of the cabarets, tea shops, and night shelters were open all night. In the morning, pogrom began. These people, who so recently uplifted by the pure general joy, so recently softened by the light of the upcoming brotherhood of man, who had gone through the streets, singing beneath the symbols of the liberty they had won. These very people were now going to kill, not because they had been ordered to kill, not because they had any hatred against the Jews, with whom they had often close relationships, not even for the sake of loot, which was doubtful, but because the sly, dirty devil that lives down deep in each human being was whispering in their ears, Go, nothing will be punished. The forbidden curiosity of the murderer, the sensuality of rape, the power of other people's lives. In these days of the pogroms, Sasha, with his funny monkey-like, purely Jewish physiognomy, went freely about the town. They did not touch him. There was about him that immovable courage of the soul, that absence even of fear of fear, which guards the weakest better than any revolver. But on one occasion, when jammed against the wall, he was trying to avoid the crowd that followed like a hurricane down the full width of the street. A mason in a red shirt and a white apron threatened him with his pointed crowbar and grunted out, Sheeny, smash the sheeny, smash him to the gutter. Someone seized his hand from behind. Stop, devil, it's Sashi, lout. The mason stopped. In this drunken, delirious, insane moment, he was ready to kill anyone. His father, his sister, the priest, the orthodox god himself. But he was also ready as an infant to obey the orders of any strong will. He grinned like an idiot, spat and wiped his nose with his hand. Suddenly his eyes fell on the white, nervous little dog, which was trembling all over as it rubbed itself against Sasha. The man bent down quickly, caught it by the behind legs, lifted it up, struck it against the paving stone, and then took to his heels. Sasha looked at him in silence. He was running all bent forward, his hands stretched out, without his cap, his mouth open, his eyes white and round with madness. On Sasha's boots were sprinkled the brains of little Bielechka. Sasha wiped off the stains with his handkerchief. Then began a strange period that resembled the sleep of a man in paralysis. There was no light in a single window throughout the whole town in the evening. But for all that flaming signboards of the cafes, chantants, and the little cabarets shone brightly. The conquerors were proving their force. Not yet satiated with their impunity, savage people in Manchurian fur caps with St. George's ribbons in their buttonholes visited the restaurants, insistently demanded that playing of the national anthem, making sure that everybody rose to their feet. They also broke into private flats, fumbled about in the beds and chests of drawers, asking for vodka, money and the national anthem, their drunken breath polluting the atmosphere. Once, some ten of them visited Gambrinus and occupied two tables, 
They behaved with the greatest insolence, talked dictatorially to the waiters, spat over the shoulders of perfect strangers, put their feet on other people's seats and threw their beer on the floor under the pretext that it was flat. Everyone let them alone. Everyone knew that they were police agents and looked at them with that secret awe and disgusted curiosity with which the people regard executioners. One of them was apparently the leader. He was a certain Motka Gundas, a red-haired, snuffling fellow with a broken nose, a man who was said to be enormously strong, formerly a professional thief, then a bully in a disorderly house, and after that, a sutaner and a police agent. He was a converted Jew. Sasha was playing the Mataliza when all of a sudden Gundras came up to him and seized his right hand, firmly shouting as he turned to the audience, The National Anthem, the Anthem, the Anthem, the National Anthem, brothers, in order of our adorned monarch. The Anthem, the Anthem, groaned the other scoundrels in the fur caps. The Anthem shouted a solitary, uncertain voice. But Sasha freed his hand and said calmly, No anthems, whatever. What? bellowed Gundas. You refuse? Ah, you stinky sheeny. Sasha bent forward quite close to Gundas, holding his lowered fiddle by the fingerboard, his face all wrinkled up, as he said, And ye? What, me? I am a stinky sheeny, all right, and ye? I am orthodox. Orthodox? And for how much? The whole of Gambrinus burst out laughing, and Gundas turned to his comrades, white with rage. Brothers, he said in a plaintive, shaking voice, and using words that were not his own, but which he had learned by heart. Brothers, how long are we to tolerate the insults of these Sheenies against the throne and the holy church? But Sasha, who had drawn himself up, compelled him with a single sound to face him again, and no one at Gambromus would ever have believed that his funny, grimacing Sasha could talk with such weight and power. You? shouted Sasha. You, you son of a dog. Show me your face, you murderer. Look right at me. Well, well. It all happened in the flash of a second. Sasha's fiddle rose swiftly, swiftly flashed in the air and cracked. The big fellow in the fur cap reeled from a sound blow on the temple. The fiddle broke into fragments and Sasha's hands remained only the fingerboard, which he brandiosed victoriously over the heads of the crowd. Brothers, help, save me, howled Gundos. But already it was too late to save him. Path walls surrounded Sasha and covered him. And this same wall swept the people in their fur caps out of the place. An hour later, when Sasha, after finishing his night's work in the beer house, was coming out into the street, several people threw themselves out on him. Someone struck him in the eye, whistled and said to the policeman who ran up, To the police station, secret service, here's my badge. Now for the second time, Sasha was considered to be definitely buried. Someone had witnessed the whole scene outside the beer shop and had handed it on to the others. And at Gambrinus, there were sittings of experienced people who understood the meaning of such an establishment as a police court, the meaning of a police agent's vengeance. But now they were much less anxious about Sasha's fate than they had been before. They forgot about him much more quickly. Two months later, there appeared in his place a new violinist, incidentally one of Sasha's pupils, who had been fished up by the accompanist. Then, one quiet string evening, some three months later, just when the musicians were playing the waltz, expectations, someone's thin voice called out in fright, Boys, it's Sasha! Everyone turned round and rose from the barrels. Yes, it was he, the twice-resurrected Sasha, but now with a full-grown beard, thin, pale, 
They threw themselves at him, surrounded him, thronged to him, rumpled him, plied him with mugs of beer. But all at once the same thin voice exclaimed, Brothers, his hand! Suddenly they all became silent. Sasha's left hand, hooked and all shriveled up, was turned with the elbows towards the side. Apparently it could not bend or upend. The fingers were permanently sticking up under the chin. What's the matter with you, comrade? The hairy boatswain from the Russian navigation company asked. Oh, it's nothing much, a kind of sinew or something of that sort, Sasha replied carelessly. So that's it. They all become silent again. That means it's the end of the Chaban? The boatswain asked compassionately. The Chaban? Sasha exclaimed with dancing eyes. You there, he ordered the accompanist with all its old assurance. The Chaban, eins, drei, twei. The pianist struck up the merry dance, glancing doubtfully over his shoulder. But Sasha took out of his pocket with his healthy hand some kind of small instrument about the size of his palm, an elongated and black stem which he put into his mouth, and bending himself to the left as much as he mutilated motionless hand aloud, he began suddenly to whistle an uproariously merry chaban. Ho, 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 the audience rocked with laughter. The devil, exclaimed the boatswain, and without in the least intending it, he made a clever step and began to beat quick time. Fired by his enthusiasm, the women and men began to dance. Even the waiters, trying not to lose their dignity, smilingly capered at their posts. Even Madame Ivanova, unmindful of the duties of the captain on his watch, shook her head in time with a flame dance and lightly snapped her fingers to its rhythm. And perhaps even the old, spongy, time-worn gambleness slightly moved his eyebrows and glanced merrily into the street. For it seemed that from the hands of the crippled, hooked Sasha, the pitiable pipe-shell sang in a language unfortunately not yet comprehensible to gambleness, friends, or to Sasha himself. Well, there it is. You may maim a man, but art will endure all and conquer all. End of section one.